Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another cracking installment of the Map Brown Show. This is the Secrets of Scale series, where we're connecting you to guys who've built things that are actually scaling and that have survived past uh, some difficult periods of time. Uh, with me on the line uh, from California is the CEO of Attack IQ, Brett Galloway. Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Brett, for our viewers around the world who uh, haven't heard about uh, the cool things that you guys are doing at Attack IQ, why don't you give us uh, a bit about the elevator pitch, tell us about who your customers are, and give us the initial um, breadcrumbs to the problem that you solve. Happy to. Um, maybe set the stage. We help solve it. We help enterprises solve their cybersecurity problems. Um, and we do that with a software solution that helps them make sure that their security program is actually working. Um, turns out of successful enterprise breaches, 82% of successful breaches should not have worked. The industry is plagued by what we call security control failure, right? There are locks on the doors and windows. The, 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 uh, the adversary gets there and they open the door and they find the door is open. Um, that happens because they're complicated. That happens because they almost never get tested. That's the problem we solve. The company was founded in 2013 to make the world safe for compute. Um, the reality is software is dangerous. It has vulnerabilities. Exploiting those vulnerabilities can cause huge amounts of harm. There was a large, well-known breach a year before last Colonial Pipeline that disrupted fuel delivery for an extended area for over a week. Um, most of the people who couldn't get fuel probably never heard of Colonial Pipeline before this happened. They certainly never knew that they were dependent on a um, computer system that was fragile, um, and uh, and and when subject to cyber attack, didn't support the business and caused the whole business to uh, to stop. Cool, thanks, Brett. Um, obviously, this and the other thing you mentioned to me when we first met a couple of weeks back was uh, that uh, this isn't your first rodeo. So, <laughs> so uh, tell us a bit about your background and your foray into scaling companies uh, as an entrepreneur. Happy to. Um, I I got the startup bug early in my career. Um, so I went to work for my first startup when I was 23 or 24 years old and I spent most of my career in startups. And what's exciting about startups, obviously, is the chance to make a difference, um, to, to create a new thing, to create a new, new uh, capability in the world. Um, and, uh, and so I had a succession of startups. Um, the first one, I was hired as a software engineer. By the time I left, I ran engineering. The next company, I was co-founder, a company called Packeteer, which we took public which was an amazing experience. Um, company after that was a company Airspace, which I joined as CEO, um, building wireless land systems. Um, and over the course of you know my experiences, I learned more and more about business and more and more about this problem about how to scale businesses. You know, at, at heart, I'm an engineer, um, but I've had to learn a lot about sales and marketing and finance and operations and other things, which, which are all the things you have to come together to really make a business work. Um, I ended up after airspace at Cisco for six and a half years, um, large, well-known networking company. I sold the company to Cisco. And so I went from CEO of this startup to, uh, to an employee of Cisco, <laughs> which was a huge transition um, and a huge learning opportunity. Obviously, you know, startups, you know, scaling startups is one thing. Cisco is a, is a truly massive company. I learned a lot about operations at, you know, at, at very high scale. Um, then after that, you know, ultimately, then then I went back to my roots with startups and took this job as CEO of Attack IQ, another cybersecurity startup. 
Uh, Brett, what would you say? I mean, obviously, you've listed companies. You've been there when they've been acquired. You've worked in, you know, these monolithic, massive companies like Cisco. When you think about all the things that you've experienced, when we, th- when you think about scale, what emotions does that bring up for you? What I'm trying to under- get a, you know, kind of get your view from on is. Um, is scale it's like there's a very silicon valley narrative around scale like it's got to, you got to raise money you have to scale and because if you you know if you don't raise 75 million dollars which is you know what you guys have raised to date or you haven't become a unicorn then you you're not successful you know um and i'm curious to get your view like when when you know, with the word scale like you know what what are entrepreneurs startup founders not thinking about when it comes to scale, and this is probably you know a very important point to land for startup founders, you haven't you know listed on on uh, listed their companies on the Nasdaq or on the New York Stock Exchange, or they haven't had their company acquired, and like they they're they're, they're aspiring and you know they're ambitious people, men and women trying to scale, right? Um, and you've done all that. Um, so what are they missing? That's a great question, Matt. Um... You know, to begin with, you know, I, I think a lot of the discussion about unicorns and scaling valuations and so on completely misses the mark. Um, and I think there are a couple important dimensions. One is the purpose of business is to serve your customers. Um, the purpose of business isn't actually to make money. The purpose of business isn't to create employment. The purpose of a business is to serve the customers. Now, you have to make money. You have to... Um, you know, have, you know, have employees and treat them well. Those are all, those are all elements of having a successful business. But the reason you have a business is because you have a, a problem you're trying to solve for your customers. And so the most, most important aspect of scaling is scaling the number of customers you serve. Um, the, uh, now that only happens, of course, if you have a valuable, you know, valuable proposition you can put in front of them, you can collect money. Obviously businesses require money to get fed, much like it's like people need oxygen in order to live. Um, but, you know, our purpose as people is not to breathe. You know, the purpose of a business is not to make money. The purpose is to serve the business. And so um, so that's, the mo- from my perspective, most important aspect of scaling is scaling the, cu- the number of customers you serve. And you want to do that because the reason you create a startup is because you want to solve a problem, have an impact in the market. Um and you don't do that if you don't actually scale the number of people where you have an impact. So that's that's the first thing. Second thing is that in order to have a business, ultimately you need to collect more revenue than you spend. Um, and so the other fundamental element of a business is you have to operate as a business, which means having employees is really important, but the first, first order of business is making sure you're operating efficiently. Um, which generally means you want as few employees as possible to get done what you need to get done. And that's important, not just for the matter of operating efficiently, it's also a matter of operating effectively because the more, if you have lots of people, then they frequently get in the way of, of each other. Um, you know, and, and certainly one of the things that can be nice about a startup is because, because you have to operate efficiently, you, you do operate more effectively. And large organizations often, you know, because they're relaxing that constraint, often have lots of people who just get in the way, mm. actually. Um, and so it is also not an objective to have lots of employees. It's, it's objective to have the right employees 
um, the right number of employees, have the right people, have them, you know, committed to the mission of the business and operating effectively together to serve your customers. Um, now, valuation didn't show up anywhere in that conversation. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Correct. Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, my, uh, uh, you know, I think when you're younger, like, you know, I, I kind of, I learned when I was very young, like if you, if you tell a 26 year old man that he can uh, walk on water, he'll probably believe you, you know? And I think after founding, you know, 14 startups and, you know, having sold a couple myself and also uh, f having pretty much a lot of those failed also in the pursuit of scale. You know, I think it took me a while to recognize that certain types of businesses will never scale. And I'm not, I'm not talking about like, you know, a hair, a hair salon, I'm like a services business, you know, like my last company had 55 people, we're doing lead gen for tech brands, and we doubled revenues every year. And, you know, it was like, whoop, whoop, let's go and scale this bad boy. You know, we started to build technology products, we had a group structure, there were these business units, and we had multiple teams doing different things and shared services, this and that. And suddenly, I, I woke up one day, and, and I was like, this sucks. <laughs> you know, like yes. this sucks. It really, really sucks. Like it, I, I hated the business. I was like, what have I built? And I was yeah. like, you know what? If I just been more, let's just say guarded or careful around my own ambition as the founder, because I also know this to be true, that a business will only scale to the extent that you do. Um, and so if you're, if you're trying to scale yourself, it's like, cool, but actually is it actually something that you should be scaling? You know what I mean? Like if you kept it, if you kept it at 10 people or 20 people, would that be okay? And and you, maybe you kept it for 10 years, you know, and you didn't have to reinvest all your, your, uh, your free cash into products and innovation in the pursuit of scale, you know? Just, and I, I personally had this experience where I was like, I was like, what the hell am I doing? Well, it, it, it's, it's a great point, Matt. And I guess I would translate back that the question is what impact you wanted to have. Yeah. Right. And if you were, if the business was, was accomplishing its purpose and having the impact you wanted to have, then that's great. Right. Um, and you're correct. I, I think, I think many founders have to make that decision, right. Which is, um, you know, what is my role in the business and what is, what's the business's role? Um, you know, a lot of startups, you know, venture backed startups obviously have an imperative, right? Venture capitalists don't put money in without an expectation it's going to grow to a high valuation and grow scale. And so that's important. If you're going to run one of those companies, you need to sign up for that program. But even then, you have to be thoughtful about how you invest. Um, you know, sometimes in a startup, you're you're building a widget, a better widget to serve an existing market. And sometimes you're you've invented a whole new widget, which case you have to create a market. Creating markets is more fun. It can be more durable, but it takes longer. And the consequence is you have to invest more carefully um, because if it's going to take longer, then you don't want to you don't want to overshoot where the market is at, right? Yeah. So again, pre premature scaling is a terrible mistake. Um, and you know, and ultimately, you know, you you, you also have to decide. Uh, what what the market can absorb, not just what you can actually deliver. Yeah, that that's a very good point. Um, I've had that that point come up before around premature scaling because it's like, yeah, I think we're there. You know, we've doubled revenues for three years, so are we there? You know, 
I mean, if it's a revenue focus, sure, okay, maybe you are, but maybe you're not because it, that's what kind of I, th- I believe what happened to us. We we literally gobbled up the whole. You know, it was obviously an a- Middle East Africa play at the time, and I think I believe we just gobbled up all the all like the whole market. Like we we built the best operating model that that the market had seen, and we just smashed it. And it was built for Africa, you know, um, and Africa is not like the US and this is another thing that's come up before where you know like I use the same example all the time but like I was always doing the right thing in the wrong country so you know uh, and you know like in the whole of Africa there's a million sorry there's a hundred startups that have raised a million dollars in the last 12 months say in the US is over 12 and a half thousand you know so it's like well if you if you're looking revenue growth and market uh, you know uh, market um uh, the market's ability to absorb what you're doing, like, you know, pick your struggle, you know, can you scale it here in the U S well, probably not with that same operating model, which is what we learned. Cause we were like, shit, we actually running out of customers, <laughs> you know, we actually need to go into other markets. And then, and then even then we learned pretty quickly that the operating model that we had that was unique to Africa, wouldn't scale in the U S you know? Um, so my question is, how do you know when you're there? Like, is it an intuitive thing? You know, and there was intuition that that leads that sort of decision, or is it more business model or you know other data uh, point related? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are a couple of things you can look at. You know, one one is the scalability of your operating model, right? Um, the uh, you know, there, there's um, basic rule of scaling, right? If you just linearly increase the scale of something, it actually changes, right? You know, a small insect can actually can walk on water. You and I can't, right? And that has to do with just scaling properties, right? Um, Unless you're 26. Yeah, so just scaling up an insect to the size of a human, we see it in in disaster movies, but it turns out they would die. They couldn't breathe. Um, So you cannot just take a small thing and blow it up and expect it to work. Yeah. and so you have to you have to first think about the scalability of the way you're operating. Um, the uh, you know the, the next thing obviously you have to think about is is the ability of the market to absorb what you're doing. Um, sometimes the answer is you need to stop growing or investing. Sometimes the answer is you have to change what you're the offer you're giving to your customers, hmm. right? Um, you know, in, in the example, right, the obvious strategy wouldn't have been go to the U.S. The obvious strategy would be, what else can I sell to these customers in Africa? Yep. And that's what we that- built an operating model and get to these customers, right? Building, you know, building new go-to-market motions is really hard. Mm. Um, taking an existing one and, you know, you, you can grow revenue in two ways. You can sell the same thing to more people or you can sell more stuff to the same people. Um, and the latter is actually often easier <laughs> not always yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it depends on the scalability of the market right you know and certainly in cybersecurity software one of the reasons why it is such a richly invested space is because the markets are very uniform mm. right you know we have customers in asia and customers in europe and customers in the united states and they're basically using the same software to solve the same problems and the go-to-market models are very similar. So the scalability of these software products in cybersecurity and the scalability of go-to-market motions is actually quite high um, in terms of selling the same thing to more people. That's the reason why these are venture-backed industries, because they have the property they can scale. 
Mm-hmm. Lots of businesses don't have that for those properties, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the right strategy depends on depends on the circumstances. You know, I, I've got I've got a, a three shelves full of business books, and frequently you have two books next to each other that recommend exactly the opposite strategy. You know, and they're not wrong; they're both correct. Right. What they fail to do is explain exactly what circumstances those strategies are relevant and which they're not. Yeah. What's fun uh, about business, right? Is it's you know it's a very interesting game. It is. It is indeed. And on that, uh, Bombshell, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in a minute. The Matt Brown Show is presented by Carafin, an investment bank that offers and supports direct private investments in U.S. operating companies. Over the past 20 years, investors have placed over $1.2 billion of private debt and equity in more than 100 companies through Carafin and its affiliates. Carafin leverages technology to empower its community of investors to deploy their capital far more efficiently than ever before and connects their community of engaged investors with worthy companies. Invest portions of your portfolio in direct private investments today. Visit carafin.com forward slash Matt Brown Show for more. And we're back. Hey guys. So, um, so Brett on this idea of like, you know, selling, cause that's what we try to do. We, we develop technology products to service the same customers. So we would diversify our income streams from project revenue to, uh, to subscription revenue. And what I found was that as a, as a small business say to, to strategically pivot into developing that type of capability, it actually sucked out a lot of um, time and resources that we um, had. We had to like oh, get a CTO, then a development team, then we had to get infrastructure. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and so that journey took a lot of time. And what we, what I found was was that, or oh, a mind divided always equals failure, you know. And and again, it it was it could have been a case of well, let's not do that. I mean, you know, we're good. We'll just stay this size for now, you know, and just wait and see. Um, and but we didn't. So we, you know, obviously, you know, ambition being a double-edged sword, right? Um, and so we just started to develop all these products. And that journey, the the technology journey, the ones that you guys are on, and then a lot of startups are on. I've and every <laughs> I found that to be in, like exponentially harder than just trying to scale a services business to a point where it's like, yo, okay, my lifestyle's great. You know, I can put, like, I can take my family on holidays whenever I want. I've got Harley Davidson's. My life's great. You know, I didn't need to go there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, but I yeah. did. And, 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 I, and, I, and I think back on that time and I, and I wonder if I hadn't, if I'd been a little bit more realistic about moving a business into a space where, you're still small, and by small I mean you know you're doing one, two and a half, three million dollars a year. I still, you know, I still think that that's small. Um, and uh, and I think back on that time, and and I just wonder whether there's a lesson here, or an insight here, or perspective here, Brett, that you could share on on my journey from what you've heard. You know what I mean? Because I think this whole idea of scale, it's like it has to be very, very carefully considered, because if it isn't the wheels can and do come off. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great point. And, you know, um, um, let, let me let me start maybe by answering the question in the context of attack IQ, if it'd be okay. Yeah. 
you know, we, we're a single product software, cybersecurity software company. We solve an amazingly important problem for our customers, right? And helping customers fundamentally improve the risk posture of their business by basic, by, um, by, by helping them sort of find all of these broken, you know, locks and windows, not locks on doors and windows and fix them. Um, now the chat, you know, so one of the challenges we have is our customers don't know how to use, don't know how to do that. They don't know how to build a program around that. So we've realized that we had to build a service offer to go along with our product. But we're not selling services generally, we're selling services that enhance the usability and absorbability of our product and our customer environments. So we're still selling one thing, it's just a combination of services and products. Um, the, uh, you know, we talked internally about, you know, defining other services as a way to increase revenue. And I've rejected that because it would be too complicated and it would, it would break scaling. It would be a brand new thing. Um, and, um, you know, and similarly, you know, I think it, it's a pretty common failure mode that I observe that, pro, you know, services business try to build products usually don't work. Because hmm. you've hired people who are worried about building services and you've, and the kind of people you need to build products are just different. Um, and even in our case, you know, we, we've hired services people, but it's, it's, it's still sort of an enhancement to our core product business. And so the ethos, the value proposition is the same. The message to customers is the same. How we monetize it is the same. It's still a subscription. So we kept as many things possible the same with that, with that modest tweak to our offer. Um, you know, and back to the earlier point, you know, if, if the thesis is that you're going to sell more things to the same customer, you have to be really thoughtful about what those things are. So there's real synergy, right? You can take two unrelated businesses and glue them together. That doesn't, it never works. Um, right in the sixties, there was this thesis around investing in conglomerates and it died because taking three unrelated businesses and tying them together doesn't make something great. I mean, my, my very first employer, actually, I saw that. Um, I left after two and a half years and went to a startup and then I went to my first shareholder meeting. And the management team trudged in because I was a shareholder right, and they, through the employee stock purchase plan. And they proceeded to describe three totally unrelated businesses. Um, and I looked at the leadership team and they were clearly suitable only for running one of those businesses. So that immediately after that, I sold all my stock. That was the dumbest thing I've ever seen, right? These people have no use running these other two businesses. They, I mean, they were interesting businesses. They should just be three businesses. Um, so, so that was a clear case where they tried to scale revenue by moving in unrelated businesses, which was foolish. And in fact, they ultimately divest all that stuff. I mean, it was quite obvious what they needed to do. You know, even to me at, you know, 23 years old, um, or 24 years old, um, the, uh, so I guess so. so I guess that, that that Matt that would be one way I'd think about it. You know, is if you're going to expand your business, you want to change as few things as possible. So I'm curious about that um, that point you made, Brett, around services business that then try and pivot into the technology product space fail. Why is that the case in, from your perspective? Oh, it's just it's just building products is just very different than build, than productizing services. Mm. Right, services are inherently custom. Um, they, you know, and pro the whole point of a product is I build a thing and I give it to you, and you pretty much got to run it by yourself. 
right? And so it's just, it's a very different mindset in terms of how you, and you know, you can engineer services too. You can product manage services, you can define services, all of those things are true, but it's just very different. The requirements are different. Um, and the kind of people who are good at that are different. Mm-hmm. So if you want to build a products business, it requires you basically build a whole separate business over here. Um, and that's hard and it's expensive. Um, and, you know, and usually the thesis was we have these products and we're already talking to the customers and, and we'll optimize, you know, some aspect of our service. And that can work, but it's got to be very thoughtfully, you have to very thoughtfully choose what, what these technologies are they're using to enhance your services. You know, it's the complement of Attack IQ strategy. We're a product company with a few enhancing services. You can totally have a services business with a few enhancing products. But it's still a services, but the offer to the customer is still service, right? Mm. Trying to build an independent product <clears throat> business, I think, is very hard. And also, what I learned was that trying to fund that with a service, to fund the technology product side of things with the services business is like, that's hard. Well, yeah, it's, but, but it's, it's hard, hard. But it's hard for the same reason. Yeah, Your potential investors know that this is not a model that usually works. Mm. In fact, it almost never works. So, why would an investor fund that? Yeah, knowing true. knowing that these things are true, right? These investors are just pattern matchers, right? Whether it's a bank giving a traditional bank loan, or whether it's a venture investor writing you a you know Series A check or a seed check or whatever. They're doing the same calculus. They're evaluating a set of criteria and they're matching you against a pattern of successful and prior investment decisions. If you fit that pattern, they will say yes. If you don't fit that pattern, they will say no. And yep. the pattern you're describing is not a successful pattern. If hindsight, if hindsight, <laughs> if any hindsight was like not such a shitty experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the price of experience, right? But, yeah, exactly. QBE, um, baby, qualified by experience. Um, exactly. Speaking of funding, uh, everyone's on a funding cycle right now. Um, funding through, uh, you know, funding to scale seems to be order of the day and the status quo f- and has been for, for some time. Um, you guys, as I touched on, at least according to Crunchbase, you guys have raised, I don't know, 75 odd million um, your Series C already, so you're a real mature company. Um, what have you learned about f- you know, the use of funding to scale a company like Attack IQ? It's a big question. question. Yeah, I mean, broadly, you want to raise as little money as possible. Um, and there are two reasons for that. One is that in a venture model, every time you raise money, you're selling a piece of your company. Um, so it's dilution. Now dilution's fine, and you know if you have an appropriate market opportunity, it's fine to dilute the company. But over raising money is is not a good idea because you're going to over dilute yourself and everybody else. Um, the other more important reason is having too much money is not a feature. Um, one of the, the major reasons startups win over larger companies is because they are forced to make hard decisions. Um, larger companies with lots of money don't have to make hard decisions. Therefore, they don't make hard decisions, which means they have too many employees. They try too many initiatives. They try to do too many things. And, you know, the, the single most valuable thing a startup can have is strategic clarity. 
this is what we're doing and here's why we're doing it and here's how we're doing it and that's what we're going to do and we're going to maintain all of our focus on that um having more money robs you of strategic clarity and that actually erodes your ability to execute um so it is you know the, the whole venture model is actually i mean it wasn't designed it was developed over time but it partly one of the reasons it works is because it forces you know startups stay very focused on reaching another funding milestone which is very concrete very pretty concretely defined and you have a limited amount of capital to achieve it so you're forced to actually make strategic decisions effectively you know th th this this is the thing that i think is in some respects the hardest part of running a startup because there's almost nobody in a startup or in a company that can actually make those hard decisions is empowered to make them and have those decisions stick because there's always more stuff you need to do or you want to do right your reach always exceeds your grasp there's always more more opportunity than you think that you can that you then you can actually reasonably serve um in the company there's usually like two people that can make those hard decisions maybe it's like a ceo maybe it's a founder maybe it's the two of them together nobody else could even make that decision even if they knew what to do and make it stick because the forces that, that pull at you pull you to do more stuff, not less stuff. Um, and so, you know, so that 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 becomes the, in my mind, the most important responsibility of a leader of a company is to make sure those hard decisions are made. Um, and and the the word hard is important. They're hard because you can do them wrong. You know, you 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 know you you. You think of a video game, right? You can go to a video game, you go to the left branch, you die, you go in the right branch, you win. I mean, sometimes you don't know which is which. And so there's a real risk that you choose wrong and you die. Um, so that's the reason why there's these are very they're hard decisions to make. Um, you know, back to your earlier point about the book full of business books, right? There, you know, that describes an you know, array of doors that you could choose to enter. But in a in a in a small business, you don't get to choose all those doors. You get to choose one, and so the winners are the ones who choose either luckily or wisely or both. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you have to choose, and I think that's but you have to choose. The losers yeah. don't choose. Yeah, you can't be. The question is: the risk of having too much capital is it deludes you into thinking you don't have to choose. Mm. Yeah, I'm curious about that actually because I was going to ask you about you know what what perspective is in your in, from you know what perspective do you have about the dynamics between um, an investment group or maybe a capital raise and the startup founder you know like you're getting Series C seventy five maybe do Series D and I don't know hundred and fifty but then at each stage the dynamics get more that that you know they change and I I think one of the key things I've learned is that you know most founders get replaced after three years if they take on like vc money it's like one in two five and ten uh you know they get replaced because like okay dude you were great at building me a house but we now need a skyscraper and you're not that guy correct yeah and you know it, that shouldn't be a surprise right it's back to the scaling thing right the chance of that a 24 year old is going to turn into you know a great ceo of a large organization without any experience or training that doesn't seem very plausible. Um, it happens sometimes, and it's great, but but a lot of times it doesn't happen. And, uh, and investors, you know, obviously, the board has to think about the well-being of the business. The founder should too, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know the you know the founders should for for three reasons, right? One is because they have a they have a capital interest in creating value in their business because they're usually a significant shareholder. Number two, they should care about the effectiveness and well being of their team. Right. And if the organization scaled past their ability to operate, they're not they're not treating their team well. And most importantly, you know, if you you end up not serving your customers well, and the whole purpose of the business is serve your customers well. Um, you know, and if you're, you know, if you if you need to scale to meet your investors' requirements and you can't do it, then you have to replace yourself. Right. And in fact, I would, you know, I would say it's a failure mode for a founder not to do that proactively. How do you know when you need to replace yourself? What's your advice to a founder who may be sitting on a series B round or a series A and he's like, yeah, this actually, like kind of like what I'm, you know, you reach a certain level and you're like, you know, screw this. Like, I don't want to talk to a board. I don't, I'm tired of getting heat, you know, from a board of investors, you know, I, like this actually isn't for me. Like I want to go and climb the seven peaks of the world. <laughs> you know, what's your advice to a founder who needs to make that difficult decision, but potentially is like, Hey, this is my baby, and I'm not going to leave. Yeah, I think you have to look at two things. You have to look at your interest in the job, right? It's very hard to be excellent at a job that you don't want to do. Um, so that 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 you have to evaluate internally, right? Do I want to do this? You know, your your example was I don't want to deal with investors anymore. Well, if you don't want to deal with investors anymore, maybe you shouldn't be in the job because that's a big part of the job. Mm. Um, the uh, now. Um, you know, people do grow in jobs, and there are lots of very successful founders who've grown into amazing CEOs. And that, they didn't start out that way. Um, but I think, but at their core, they had to they had to take on the challenge of, of making themselves better. Mm. You know, and that that you know that starts with interest. They need to want to do that. And then the second is they have to be open to feedback, and they have to be open to learn and grow and you know, if something's wrong, you know, you have to decide, you know, can I fix that in me? And maybe you can, right? I mean, people get better. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's a sad thing, actually, for a startup when the founder does step aside. Hmm. Right? Um, so, you know, I think, you know, the VCs generally are much more receptive, you know, over the last decade to founders continuing the job than they were when I entered the field. And I think that can be a good thing. I think just kicking the CEO out just because they're, you know, just because they don't have the experience is a mistake. If you have a founder who's willing to invest and learn and grow and take feedback. Um, but that that's that's now responding to external inputs, right? Taking feedback from your board, taking feedback from employees, taking feedback and saying, you know, that didn't work. All right, I need to do that better. Um you know, so I think so I think the other half of that is commitment to personal growth. Yeah, absolutely. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back. Raising money for your startup? Well, why don't you close your next funding round fast? Get investor-focused media and FaceTime with relevant investors in days. Visit showworksmedia.com for more. That's showworks with an X, media.com. Uh, Brett, I'm curious um, to ask you this. What have you learned most about yourself when it comes to, in the context of scaling companies? Is there an area of your life that 
you transformed in order to scale from a personal growth perspective? What comes to mind? That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, probably the most important leadership lesson for me didn't have so much, it had to do with scaling, but at a very limited, but at a very low level. And it was when I first became a manager, actually. Um, you know, I was a manager of a couple people, that didn't matter. But then finally, I was running a reasonably large group. Um, and I sucked. Um, and I sucked because, um, you know, I, because I, you know, it, well, let me frame it this way. My, my, my boss beat the tar out of me. And the way he framed it was that I was negative. Um, you know, and the failure mode was that, you know, I'm a reasonably bright fellow. You got people working for you. I pretty much knew what to do. Um, and um, so somebody would come to me with an idea and I thought it was stupid. I just would stop listening and, um, um, and frequently tell them what I thought. And that's very disempowering for people. Um, and so I had to very painfully learn and I learned under his, you know, relentless battering figuratively, not literally, um, that I needed to change my thought process. You know, if you come to me with an idea that I think is stupid, there, there are two plausible explanations. One is you're stupid. The other is I'm stupid. And sometimes one is true and sometimes the other is true. And so it's better maybe to, to listen with an open mind, you know, with the pot, because both are possibilities, right? <laughs> you know, maybe you're saying that because you don't understand all the data and maybe I can help you. Maybe you're saying that because you look at the problem differently and your, your, your way of looking at the problem is more constructive than mine. Um, and so what I had to do, I had to train myself to replace, you know, the, the voice in my head that's critical saying, you know, you dumbass. Hmm. Um, the voice in my head saying, hmm, you're not a dumb guy. You're saying something I don't understand. Maybe I had to, maybe I had to listen more carefully and there's something to learn here. Um, that turned out to be a really important trick for me. Um, and it's what actually ultimately made it possible for me to be an effective manager, mm. you know, which again is, you know, is the first level of scaling, right? Um, you know, there's very few businesses you can run all by yourself. <laughs> Those are almost non-existent. <laughs> Most businesses require you, you to actually have other people. And, you know, if you're going to run them, you got to lead those people, which means you got to be an effective manager. Um, you know, and. And so in the process, two things, if that, doing that, two things happen. One is, you know, you, you learned some stuff that you didn't know, and that's important because you can't know everything. And the other, and more importantly, is that people don't like to be told what to do. Um, you know, it's not uncommon that there's a choice to be made, and it's not obvious what the choice is. And the right answer is not for me to choose. The right answer is for the person that works for me to choose, because if they've chosen, they'll execute it with more passion more creativity, more energy. Um, and so what I need to do is help them do that. And maybe this other choice was marginally better, but probably not enough to make it to replace the fact that people like autonomy. Um, you know, and so, you know, I said earlier about the, you know, hard choices, there are an immense array of choices happen in companies that are not hard choices, but they're choices. And so the art is making sure the right person makes those choices. You try to centralize all those decisions in the CEO, the company will fail. Yeah, uh, 
I had Leif Babin on the show um, about a couple of years ago. He's a Navy SEAL. And he wrote, he's a New York Times bestselling author. Oh, I, forgot, I forget the co-author's name now. God damn. Uh, but um, uh, Jocko Willink. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've read, I've, read, I've read his work. So, you know, like the, and he, I said to him, you know, if you're on, if you're in a battle zone and I always use this and I always say like, you know, scaling a company is the same as going to war. It's just like, you're not going to get shot, but pretty much it's the same similar feeling, you know, uncertainty, doubt, leadership, pressure, you know, making effective decisions under pressure. I had Kevin Eastman on the show. He, he won the NBA championship. Uh, with the Boston Celtics, you know, and I said to him also, so you're in the huddle, it's the bottom of the fourth, you know, five seconds on the clock, what do you say to your team? You know, and the same sentiment keeps coming through, you know, when it comes to successful leadership, which is, you know, it's the mindset of, or the difference between, let's just say a young startup founder, where it's like, everybody works for me. But then there's you and me who've been around the block more than once. And it's like, hang on, I'm, I'm actually in the business of service provision to them. Um, and I'm here to empower them to affect to and you know to give them the rope and the confidence and the space to go and make mistakes because that's how you learn and that's how you become a better team and better teams create better businesses. Um, and and it's oftentimes an overlooked idea, isn't it, around like leadership and scale? Because it's like, wow, it's like what products and business unit economics and you know blah 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 it's like there's there's all this stuff and you've got to sell more things to the same customer don't you but then it's like hang on but how are you how are you doing all of that internally you know um and this idea of leadership traits or qualities really do make the difference in many cases so curious to get your view what would you say in the context of scale is like you know in from your experience a non-negotiable trait for an, a successful founder to have so that they can scale their companies. They have to be willing to let go, right? You know, as soon as you have an employee, you have to let go some. Because <laughs> um, otherwise, you don't need an employee. You just need, you know, you can't clone yourself. Um, the, uh, you know, but, but obviously, you can't let go of everything. So the art is knowing what to let go and what not. Um, you know, those hard decisions you got to own, you got to scrub in, you got to educate yourself, you got to make them effectively. And then the decisions that aren't those hard decisions that maybe some person on your team is in better position to make than you are, you need to empower them to do that. Um, you know, as you add people, you know, organizations slow down. So you then, then you also have to focus on removing blockers. This organization get blocked, decisions get blocked, ability to execute get blocked. And so you got to be paying attention to um, how to help them be more effective. Um, you know, and that, that definitely introduces this sort of servant leadership idea. Your job isn't to tell people what to do. Your job is to help solve problems for them. Hmm. Um, you know, almost never, um, do you ever want to pull rank? You know, if you find yourself pulling rank saying, do this because I told you and I'm your boss, I mean, you need to like stop, you need to go outside to figure out how you found yourself in that situation and not do that again. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I avoid like the plague pulling rank. Because, um, you know, one, because again, once you do that, people stop thinking. It's like a fine boss. You know, you can fire me if I don't do it. I'll do it. You know, but I don't believe you. So they're going to do a poor job. Um, but it also means, you know, there, there's some dysfunction that led people to that point. 
you know, I, I find I would much rather even people work for me. I'd rather convince if you work for me, I'd rather convince you that I'm right than tell you that I'm right. Hmm. Um, you know, and that's because if I convince you that I'm right, then I'm more likely that I'm right. Hmm. But then in the process, I'd be open to being wrong. So, so I think I actually I think there's a deep level of humility required in being an effective leader. Um, you know, you have to be willing to let things go. You have to be willing to let other people make decisions. You have to figure out how you serve their interests and serve their their beliefs and their choices, um, and then find ways to influence them because they may also be wrong. Yeah, it's a that idea of letting go is is actually it's freeing. You know, when you are a one man band or you, you know you five people, it's like you you know everyone's doing five jobs. You know, because there's that's that's what it takes, um, and then you start to hire, 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 and then you hit twenty five people. It's like, okay, cool. So let's get some systems and process. Okay, you know, you do that thing and you do that thing, and now suddenly you've got some structures, um, and suddenly you're you're actually free, freer. You know what I mean? So you don't make a hundred decisions a day. You start to make ten. And then the more layers you add in, in the management structure or business structure, the fewer decisions you start to make. So what I found is that like the best CEOs don't get paid millions a year to make a hundred decisions. They get paid to make one, you mm-hmm. know, and because that's what their expertise is. Um, and I can also say from experience that when you put your team in the deep end, when you go, listen, yeah, this is the strategy, go figure it out. I don't care what you do, just come back to me with you know what you think is the right executional plan, whatever, or the right product, right service, commercial model, whatever. And then they go away and they come back. And that that process of you figure it out, you figure it out, you and I'm letting go, you you're in charge. I'm empowering you to go and figure that stuff out on your own. Um, the loyalty that that creates, and you know, from an employee perspective, from a culture perspective, and like a bond, a connection between your people perspective, is like it's immeasurable. Like I, I throughout that entire seven-year journey, I had people come to me regularly saying, "I've never learned so much in this." Sh- like I've been in a bank for ten years. I learned more in ten weeks, you know, than I learned in ten years at a bank because you empowered me to go figure stuff out on my own. Um, and I had you know similar rhetoric over and over and over again. Um, yep. and, and it's definitely a leadership style that, that I found that works. Yeah. Well, and so pe- but people like autonomy, mm. right? People want to believe that they're making a difference. People want to learn and grow. Um, that's, you know, frequently, usually more important than, than the more obvious markers of loyalty or retention, employee retention, right? Mm. Um, the, uh, you know, one one of the one of the rules that I, I I'm asked for advice a lot from people. You know, should I take this job or this, or should I leave or should I stay? And you know, there's some very basic things that you want in a job, right? I mean, am I learning? Am I growing? Do I um, am I engaged with the people that I work with? Um, am I having an impact? If you can answer yes to those three questions, then it's it's probably good. It's probably a good job. If the answer is no, then it's not. And that doesn't mean you should leave, but it means you ought to solve that problem, right? Um, and maybe the answer is you should leave, or maybe the answer is you know you need to talk to your boss or figure out you know why one of it, one or more of those things isn't true. Um, conversely, if those three things are true, you, you know, in your head, you know, in your 
um, sort of being thoughtful about your opportunities, you know, you will likely have a successful career. If you're having an impact, then your compensation is probably fine because compensation in the end is tied to impact. You're learning and growing, you're increasing your ability to deliver more impact over time. And you're doing that with people who create a strong referral network for you. So, um, so it's actually pretty simple. And then obviously the manager's job is reverse, right? Create those same situations, create an environment where people, you know, are engaged and like to work with the people they work with. They're learning and growing and they're having an impact. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing in a startup, you have to do those things or you die. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why startups can be such such a, such a uh, productive way for people to, to grow in their careers. You know, certainly that was true of me, right? I grew much more rapidly in my career because I was working for very small companies because I had to solve problems because there was no one else to do it. For large companies, there was a huge array of people solve those problems. So it's much easier to turn into a cog, you know, where you just don't even have the opportunity to do what you're describing, right? Go into the deep end and figure it out because there's other people whose job it is to figure it out and your job is just to execute. Mm. Absolutely. One more question for you, Brett, so I have a bit of fun. Um, so if I could give you the keys to the map round show time machine and you could go back to yourself on day one of Attack IQ and give yourself a piece of advice, you know, about scaling uh, the company, uh, what advice would you give yourself? Um, two bits of advice. One, one sort of positive and one more constructive. The positive bit of advice was, you know, I I came out of Cisco. Um, I was at Cisco six and a half years after I sold airspace. And so John Chambers was CEO. Um, One of the things that John was amazing at was clear and consistent messaging. Um, And so I decided when I came into Attack IQ to follow his lead. And so my advice to Brad four years ago is do that and do even more of that. the uh, um, is you know it's it's just it's just such an amazing leadership tool, um, and it's so important to create purpose, right? It's really easy to get lost in the details. You know, we need to build, we need to implement this feature, we need to call in this customer, we need to build this marketing program, whatever. But without purpose, it's just activity. And John was great at building purpose, and so my advice to the Brett would be. Um, do that and do even more of that. Amazing advice. Perspective. <laughs> well, Brett, it's been a real privilege having you on the show, bud. Um, and, uh, you, are, you, you know, you've achieved a hell of a lot over the years and super excited to see what else you're going to achieve in the future. So thanks for being on the show. Well, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for the opportunity. Anytime. Thanks, Brett. Bye-bye.